Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. and welcome to Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and we're going to be closing out January here with one hell of a story. The story in question is A Reflection on 17th Street by R.J. Taylor, in which we are introduced to Jesse, a young man at a difficult point in his life. You see, Jesse's estranged mother has recently passed away, and now he finds himself back in his childhood home. In addition to facing all of the old memories and haunts of his past, Jesse also finds a vanity mirror in the basement, something he has never seen there before. 
As he's cleaning up the basement, he happens to glance at the mirror's reflection and sees, well, it might be better for you to experience it for yourself. Now, listeners, I know that you all lament the fact that you can only hear my dulcet tones once a week on Horror Hill, but that doesn't mean that you can't find more creepy content to keep the rest of your week nice and eerie. Our show here is connected to the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast, which has enough horror fiction to keep you gluttonous little devils nice and satiated all week. After you finish tonight's episode here, I recommend you check them out on YouTube or the podcast platform of your choice. After all, the more the merrier, right? Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast, bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today and get instant access. Did I mention they're ad-free? Thank you for your support. And now, from author R.J. Taylor, I give you a reflection on 17th Street. Jesse saw the vanity for the first time on Tuesday evening, shortly after his arrival at the house. It stood high above the basement floor, the crowned tip of its mirror nearly touching the decaying rafters. A succubus, unencumbered by the existence of a predator, wholly vile, impervious. Its towering shape and antiquated complexion could only just be perceived beneath the foggy tarp that covered it. A massive, rectangular mirror settled atop a desk-like surface, a padded stool tucked neatly between two cabinets containing three square drawers, off-white, dingy, with brown lines manifesting from years of neglect. Written in black across its mirror, impossible to overlook, were the words, Burn me. It was crass and oppressively wicked. A groan came from above. A low, muffled, anguished murmur elongated into a choppy whine. Jesse set the empty laundry basket onto the damp cement floor and approached the dresser slowly. He had never seen it before. Setting foot in the basement was always strictly forbidden to him as a child. Now, with the freedom to explore at will, he wished that someone would show up and demand his immediate exit. A saturated, pungent stench curled around every molecule of air, unyielding and boisterous. Most of the broad cellar was blanketed in darkness, with only a single light bulb hanging from a cord between the stairwell and the antique dresser. 
Each of the room's many corners was thoroughly black. One of them housed a large, charcoal-colored gas furnace, nearly thirty years old, noisy, and barely visible in the shadow of the staircase. In the front half of the room, the heinous piece of furniture appeared to be the only item present apart from the washing machine and dryer, stacked in a nook only just covered in yellow light, as if the vanity's spirit was so obtrusive that any other contents simply would not fit. Jessie, stepping lightly, retrieved the basket from the floor and carried it to the washing machine. He lifted the machine's lid, bent slightly to lower his nose into the barrel, sniffed exploratively, and closed the lid. He placed the basket before the dryer and opened the door, allowing fresh towels and rags to descend into the basket. Thank God it isn't your underwear, he thought. He scooped the remainder of the clean laundry into the basket, stuck his entire head into the barrel of the dryer, and sniffed. Then he stood up, shrugged, and closed the door. He looked back at the dresser. Removing the tarp felt reckless and unnatural, like peeling the molted skin of a serpent. For a moment, Jesse stood before the massive vanity, mesmerized, absorbing the frigid malignity which seemed to spew from each of its crevices and pour over its mirror. In the coming three days, it would become tormentingly clear to our hero, if he could be classified as such, that his initial apprehension of the mirror was not unwarranted. He tossed the tarp to the floor and began to open each of the six drawers, one at a time, inspecting their interiors. Each of them was empty. He rested his left hand on the desk and pulled the stool out from underneath it with his right, finding nothing underneath. As he returned the stool to its position in the vanity's hollow, at the edge of his peripheral vision, he spotted a dark figure standing behind him at the front of the stairwell. He snapped upright and turned to find nothing but a case of shabby stairs with the light bulb hanging in its forefront, swinging slowly from right to left, the beaded metal string on its side scratching softly against its glass. Jesse turned back to the mirror and watched the yellow glow sway behind his reflection. He stood, looking in the mirror, for nearly a minute, focused on the dangling light. At each end, the light seemed to dim slightly just before its momentum turned to carry it in the opposite direction. Its pivoting motion did not conclude. It still had not begun to slow down during the time that he had been watching it. How long had he been in the basement, he wondered. Why hadn't it stopped swinging? Was it swinging faster? With each oscillation, the dimness of the light bulb became deeper and more distinct. Jesse stood rigid, frozen, not daring to move his hand from the vanity desk or look away from the bulb for even a moment. The light bulb, like a pendulum, swung to his left and crept to his right as his eyes followed. It dimmed impossibly low, receding to a dark orange glow, and remained dark until it was almost halfway back to the left end. Now it seemed to travel more slowly, yet reached the same distance. 
Its light was gleaming over the laundry machines when it turned off completely. The illumination shone on a presence behind him, and when it shot back on, the glow was brighter and broader than it had been in Jesse's presence in the dank cellar. An involuntary gasp snuck through Jesse's lips as his stomach lurched. Still viewing the room's reflection, he saw a middle-aged woman sitting halfway up the stairs. Her legs were crossed beneath a lengthy skirt, her hair was tied back tightly, and her back leaned against the steps behind her. Her face was gaunt and impossibly pale, as if bleached. Her nose was narrow, pointy, and crooked. Her eyes were wide as she stared at Jesse, smiling broadly. Again, Jesse turned around. A shiver crawled over his skin, violating him, as the woman stared silently into his eyes. The light bulb reached its extent to his right, and the room became utterly dark. The groan continued from high above his back. He turned from the dresser and stretched his arms in front of him, groping through the blackness for the stringed wire of the bulb. The putrid smell choked him and singed his eyes. He felt a swift smack in his right hand and then a warm, rounded shape. The room burst into light and he found the glowing light bulb swinging across his face. The woman had vanished. Jesse snatched the string of the light bulb, stopped its swing, and let out an enormous sigh of relief. He chuckled at his own fantastical inventiveness as he walked to the laundry nook and picked up the basket full of towels. Couldn't you have dated an electrician? he asked. As he started up the stairs, a soft whine emitted from the cobwebbed ceiling near the dresser's pinnacle. Or a plumber? Reaching the top of the staircase, Jesse shifted the weight of the laundry basket to his left hand and forced the wooden cellar doors outward with his right. The orange glow of the sunset over 17th Street trickled under his feet and into the center of the basement below. Both of the doors swung open eagerly, as if imploring that he hasten his exit, rattling as they collided with the leaf-covered earth on either side of the basement entrance. He placed the laundry basket just outside the doorway and retreated to the bottom of the stairs. Anchoring himself on the rail with one hand, he stretched out with the other to reach the dangling light bulb and turn it off. Then he returned to the top of the stairs and stepped out of the cellar. Jesse faced the staircase and bent over to take the corner of each door in either hand. The fiery glare of the autumn sun shone against the rotting stairs and the grimy foundation, diminishing just before the foot of the vanity, filling the giant mirror with an amber radiance. In the shadow beneath the desk, it appeared that the stool had been pulled outward just enough to allow an occupant before the mirror. The tunnel of light was the mouth of the creature, leading to the core of the house's malevolence awaiting anyone ignorant enough to approach it. Jesse let the doors fall shut loudly, the old wooden planks barely clinging to their rusted metal hinges, and pulled a padlock from his pocket. He turned the key to open the lock, fastened it through both doors, and locked it, returning the key to his left pocket. He stared with disgust at the white-framed window above the bulkhead doors, 
with pale blue curtains outlining the interior of the kitchen. This house is arrogant, he said, lifting the basket and strutting around the corner of the house, not breaking eye contact with the blue shuttered window until it was out of his view. See how it looks down on you with its windows over that big nose of an awning? It's pompous, rude, and self-indulgent as shit. Its opinion of itself is infinitely higher than anyone else's opinion of it. It's a flawless personification of you, he said, following the driveway to the street. No wonder you always refused to sell it, not even when the liquor cabinet went dry. Well, I decide what happens to it now, and I give it a week before there's a for sale sign out front. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. He reached the street, opened the black mailbox, found nothing inside, and headed back up the driveway. I'm not even sure how you paid off the mortgage. I called the plant and they said you haven't worked there in years, he said. And don't think that I care if you're dead just because I'm talking to you. Kelly says the best way to grieve is to voice your feelings out loud, so she made me promise to do this for her, he said, climbing the stairs and crossing the front porch. Not that I'm grieving you. Jesse entered the house and found a mid-sized golden dog in the center of the entryway. It stood in a semi-crouched position, its eyes locked with Jesse's, with its snout wrinkled into a snarl and the short hair on its back standing upright. It let out two short barks as Jesse closed the front door behind him, locking the deadbolt above the doorknob. "'It's all right, Petey, it's just me,' he said, setting down the basket on the floor. As he approached the dog, it whimpered and retreated to a corner of the living room to lie down. Jesse followed it to the blanket where it lay and crouched to pet its ears. Petey looked up at him with solemn consternation. You actually kind of liked that old hag, didn't you? He asked Petey. I won't hold that against you. You didn't know any better. He stood and exited the living room, turning the corner into the hallway. Again, he addressed the air around him. Hey, you know what'd be fun? Why don't I list my favorite memories with you? Let's see. Remember that time when I hit your geriatric boyfriend with a shovel to stop him from beating the shit out of you? What was his name? John? Remember that? Sure you do. 
He stopped and leaned against the doorway of the bedroom, examining the cluster of blankets on the bed. Remember how you had me arrested and you told the cops that he had never laid a finger on you? What was it you said? Oh, right. You said the bruises were from slipping and falling at the plant. Ha! <laughs> did you ever think about that, Mom? I bet you did. Every day, I bet you heard your voice telling those lies, letting John and the cops call me crazy. And I bet it made you nauseous. Remember when John finally decided to leave you after your pension was drained and called you pathetic when you begged him to stay? Remember how your boyfriends always left and I never did? He leapt onto the mattress, sunk his head into the assortment of pillows, and kicked off his sneakers. I hope it haunted you every night, right here in this bed as you tried to sleep. I hope the guilt caught in your trachea and you sobbed into these pillows as you begged the cosmos for my forgiveness. Jesse heard the whistling and rattling of pipes beneath him, accompanied by a soft moan, the excruciating, desperate whine of a woman in turmoil. It should be noted that, in the basement, directly below the location of the bed in which Jesse now lay, stood the heinous dresser. Uncovered, it staged itself. Grotesque. Immune. For nearly two hours, Jesse lay exhausted, steaming, doing his best to block from his mind the distressed wailing coming from just below him and attempting not to imagine its source. The sunset glow in the window slowly transformed to blackness, and eventually he sank into sleep. On Wednesday morning, Jesse left the house with plenty of time, descending the driveway and staring at the pavement below him as he turned onto the sidewalk. He passed the tall row of hedges separating his mother's lawn from her neighbor's and heard a small, whiny voice come from his left. That's not your house. He turned to find a young, blonde-haired girl, shorter than his waist, standing in the house's driveway next to his mother's. Her hair was curled, and she wore pale blue, flat shoes, which matched her dress. It is now, he replied, not slowing his pace. No, it's not, the girl replied matter-of-factly, walking alongside him. It doesn't belong to you, and it's not nice to take things that don't belong to you. Jesse stopped walking, rolled his eyes, and turned to face the girl. It does belong to me he said. The girl stopped and placed a hand on each hip. Nuh-uh, it belongs to the old lady and the fat guy. The old lady was my mom, Jesse said. Who was the fat guy then? asked the girl. Your dad? No, I don't know a fat guy, Jesse replied. Probably just some guy she was fucking. Fuck isn't a nice word, said the little girl. I wasn't trying to be nice, said Jesse, pulling the hood of his coat over his head as he continued down the sidewalk. As he approached the end of the lawn, a blaring, shrill scream emitted from the girl. Jesse's shoulders jumped in shock. Jesus Christ, he muttered, 
looking over his shoulder at the girl and speeding up his pace. The girl stood in the same spot in the middle of the driveway, her eyes squinting into black lines as she scrutinized Jesse. Her hands were at her sides, clenched tightly into fists, and her entire body leaned into the long, blood-curdling scream. As soon as Jesse passed the next row of hedges and out of sight, the wail ended. Jesse walked along 17th Street with his hood up and had a typical day at school. When he arrived at Kelly's house in the afternoon, he found a strange car in the driveway. Peeking into the living room window, he found Kelly sitting on her couch, accompanied by a man. Both of them were smiling. Jesse left Kelly without announcing his arrival and returned to 17th Street as the sun began setting. When he passed the house next to his mother's, he found a green stick of sidewalk chalk rolling down the driveway. He walked by the middle of the driveway just in time to stop the chalk's momentum with his foot and looked up to find the same little girl he had spoken to earlier that day wearing the same blue dress. Her back was to Jesse as she knelt in the driveway, her face less than a foot from the pavement, diligently working on whatever portrait she used the chalk to create. Jesse left the chalk stick at the drive's end and began to walk past the house. Hearing footsteps behind her, the girl looked up from her work and turned to see Jesse. As soon as her head turned, she let out another piercing scream. Again, Jesse was startled by the abrupt shriek. He checked his surroundings for any bystanders as he spoke under his breath. Kid, what is your problem? His words were interrupted by a presence behind him, which vanished almost instantly when he saw it. A thin, pale-skinned woman her nose angled and pointed, stood in the middle of the street, stone-faced and wide-eyed. A deep bruise created a thick, dark red and blue line slicing across her slender neck. Before he had time to react to what he saw, the woman disappeared. Jesse crossed the row of hedges into his mother's lawn, and the little girl's screaming ceased. As he climbed the driveway and approached his mother's house, frustrated pressure built in his head and he murmured curses at the child. When he walked through the front door, his temples pulsing, his left foot met with a pile of dried excrement. Of course, he muttered. You couldn't have toilet trained your dog before you killed yourself? He heard the scratching of claws on the hardwood. The dog raced into the entryway, stopped a few feet short of where Jesse stood, and howled. Shut up! he shouted, his rage resonating through the walls, and the dog whimpered and lay down where he stood. Jesse stepped aside, opened the door wide, and gestured to the front lawn. Go ahead then! he screamed. Go outside! Petey cowered as he shuffled toward the door. Then he turned around, ran into the kitchen, sat next to an empty metallic bowl on the floor, and howled. Fine! Jesse yelled, stomping into the kitchen and searching the cupboards. Finally, he found a large bag of dog food in the pantry. 
He ripped a hole at the top of the bag, carried it to the bowl, and dumped the entire contents of the bag over it, covering the bowl and the surrounding area in kibble. There! His roar echoed over the hard wood, his jaw trembling and his vision red. He snapped and pointed down at the pile of food. Eat, Petey! The dog, quaking and peering up at the young man obsequiously, cautiously approached the bowl and began to eat. After cleaning the pile of feces and the puddles of urine from the entryway floor, Jesse again searched the cabinetry in the kitchen. He found a bottle of dark rum and began to search for glasses, opening the cabinets in random order and slamming them shut. What was wrong with the way you had your cabinets? Why did you move everything? He shouted. You had to be the most meticulously organized alcoholic in the history of the world! Finally, he found a glass and filled it halfway with rum. You're probably happy to see she's cheating on me, he said, moving to the sink and turning it on. He filled the remainder of the glass with tap water and took a sip grimacing and exhaling sharply. Then he sat down at the kitchen table, hunched over the glass. She's the only person I've ever met who didn't hate me, thanks to you, he said, looking from the yellow glass in front of him to the dog, inhaling the pile of food in the opposite corner of the small room. Petey still has quite the appetite for his age, Jesse thought calculating that he must be at least 18 now. No, that couldn't be right. Dogs his size didn't live that long. No, that was definitely right, because Petey had been about three years old at the time of Jesse's seventh birthday party, and that was 15 years ago. Yeah, he thought, that must be right. He specifically remembered Petey being at least three at that time because the dog had been fully grown and large enough to wear a party hat. The party in question had been here, in this kitchen, and only Jesse, his mother, and Petey had been in attendance. Balloons had been taped to every surface of the room, and only one poorly wrapped gift from his mother had sat in the center of the table. The ice cream cake had all but melted on the counter because Jesse had insisted they wait until the guests arrived, that some of them would surely come, and that they were probably just running late. Had his mother gotten drunk and forgotten to invite his class? It sounded like something she would have done. No, she had invited the whole class, but none of them had shown up because of the accident he'd had when he and Morgan Lindstrom were alone with Hoppy, the class pet's frog. It was just an accident, but she had told everyone that he had done it on purpose, so no one came to his party. But Petey was there, and he was big enough to wear a party hat. Jesse gritted his teeth, squeezed tears out from the corners of his eyes, and drank. Hours later, when night had fallen over 17th Street, Jesse stumbled drunkenly down the dark hallway and through the bedroom doorway. He choked as a noxious smell met his nose and throat. His stomach twisted and his nose wrinkled as he pulled the collar of his cotton shirt up over his face. 
He heard a clawing sound from beneath him as he leaned on the bedside table to turn on the small lamp. As the beige lampshade illuminated and the blackness of the room turned a dull gold, Jesse found Petey at his feet, apparently oblivious of Jesse's presence, whining as he dug at the floor near the bed. Jesse bent over and snapped his fingers sharply in the dog's ear. Petey recoiled suddenly and cowered. Jesse snapped again, pointing to the door, and the dog let out a soft, high-pitched cry as he slunk away. "'Jesus, dog, what the hell did you eat?' he asked, waving the rancid smell from the air around him as Petey's footsteps washed down the hallway and diminished. Jesse thought he heard heavy breathing from beneath the floorboards, as if a cry were being stifled. He collapsed diagonally onto the bed, his face sinking into the chaotic pile of pillows. He closed his eyes and felt the room topple over itself as nausea rose in his stomach. Rolling over to lie on his back, Jesse outstretched his left arm, pulled the shade of the lamp closer to himself, and turned it off. He sunk back into the pillows, closed his eyes, and again his head spun. He opened his eyes and stared up into the darkness, unable to find the ceiling. Jesse did not recall meeting Kelly, but only knowing her. Surely he had lived without her, eons before the construction of time, but he had not been himself then. He existed. Undoubtedly, he had been born and grown and lived before meeting her. However, he had lived as someone else. He retained a fleeting memory of adolescence before he met Kelly and began going to the university, but even then, she had been a part of him that could not be divided. He had always known and loved her, but he had never met her. He had only loved one other girl before Kelly, Morgan Lindstrom, in second grade, and she was a bitch. He had watched the back of her pigtailed head for weeks, praying for her attention, summoning the courage to make eye contact with her. He had finally lost restraint and saw his opportunity when they were alone in the classroom with Hoppy the Frog. He had blurted out the question, Do you like me? And she had said sure she liked him, but she didn't like like him, and mortified embarrassment had torched his cheeks. And that would have been the end of it. But then the accident had happened with Hoppy. The heavy rock at the center of the terrarium had slipped from Jesse's grasp and fallen directly between the bluish eyes of the tiny frog. And Morgan Lindstrom had told everyone that he had done it on purpose. He imagined a whisper coming from below. It was weak, muffled, but its crisp reverence was entirely tangible, as if the sound had truly met his ears. As if, through the absence of light, he could see thin lips before a dry tongue as they formed the word. Please. Over the previous two minutes, his eyes had become dilated, adjusting to the darkness, and he could now see the squared molding of the ceiling. The dresser stood just a few feet below him in the basement's darkness. Please, 
The whisper came once more, barely more audible. Jesse sat up and stared wide-eyed at the wall before him. He felt his esophagus inflate like a balloon, about to rupture. He closed his eyes and his head swam. Vomit boiled in his gut and shot to the bubble in his throat, where it stalled and fell to his stomach. Surveying the room, he whispered into the silent darkness, Please what? For a moment, the voice was present, but the words were incomprehensible. The woman sniffled and inhaled sharply, working to steady herself enough to speak, and finally replied. Let me out, she said, her whisper barely carrying through the walls of the wooden confinement deep beneath the room. Jesse forced his eyes closed and yanked at his hair with both hands. Like a chair, he folded himself, his head between his knees. A tear escaped from his left eye and down the bridge of his nose. I can't, he whispered into the mattress. You're dead. The woman wailed from below, no longer able to contain her anguish. She breathed heavily inward and outward. A rocking noise came from the depths of the house. For minutes, Jesse sat convulsing, his hands squeezed tightly over his ears, his unruly hair trapped between his white knuckles. The woman's cries became louder, defiling Jesse's ear, and he began hyperventilating. His stomach turned, and he lurched from the bed toward the door. He felt his shoulder slam into the wall as he fell to the hardwood floor of the hallway. Rising quickly, he stepped through the hallway and into the bathroom as his stomach heaved and he choked. He fell to his knees before the toilet, lifted the seat, and leaned on the porcelain as a yellow blur burst from his throat. His eyes watered and his head sunk into the toilet bowl, now dripping with fetid vomit. He folded his arms over the bowl and rested his head on his elbows. Then his stomach purged in another burst of painful heat, and shots of acidic puke splashed in his face. Breathing heavily, he lifted himself to the sink and washed his face of vomit and tears. He cupped his hands beneath the faucet, drank from them, and then returned to the bedroom, his arms outstretched, feeling his way into the bed. Once he had caught his breath, he heard the moaning continue from beneath him. Help me, the woman whispered. Jesse sat up and reached for the lamp, pawing around its base until he found the switch and light flooded the room. He sat at the edge of the bed and stomped on the floor. I can't help you, he bellowed at the carpet between heavy-footed stomps. You killed yourself, not me! Shut the hell up! The voice became silent. The sniffling persisted, even more stifled than before, as if the woman had covered her face with her hands. Jesse turned the light off and lay back down. For nearly an hour, he heard the faint sniffles and hushed breathing until, finally, the whimpering returned. Belligerent, Jesse leapt from the bed and again turned the lamp on. He stomped through the hallway and out the front door, 
removing a ring of keys from the hook next to the door as he stepped out into the dark night. He rounded the house and unlocked the cellar doors, swinging them open and allowing them to fall to the ground on either side of the entrance. He descended the staircase and felt through the air for the light bulb, finally pulling its string as the basement became visible. You've got one light bulb on a string lighting this entire basement like this is a goddamned little house on the prairie, he said. Rolling his eyes, he examined the basement, looking into each corner before directing his attention to the vanity standing before him. All was silent except for a faint whimper coming from near the tall mirror. Again, he was gagged by a repugnant, sacrilegious smell, like an abominating, chemically engineered cross of feces and rotting flesh. He doubled over as his eyes filled with sour tears. He wiped his eyelids, masked his face with his shirt, and composed himself. Jesse's shoulders tensed as an abrupt noise met his ears, coming from behind him. A rapid, mechanical clicking sound. He turned around and looked in the direction of the staircase, finding the source of the soft clattering. Sitting in the shadow of the unadorned stairwell, with lines of golden light across its face, the furnace had turned on, sending heat upward throughout the ventilation system. Inhaling deeply and turning back to the front of the basement, Jesse approached the dresser and pulled the small stool out from under the desk-like surface. He stepped onto the stool, then onto the desk, and stood rigid with his head between the dusty rafters, listening intently. All was utterly silent, apart from his shallow breaths, the intermittent whining of pipes, and the whir of warm air moving throughout the air ducts. Not unlike the noise he had heard in the bedroom, a sniffle floated through the forsaken air. Jesse hunched over to view the reflection of the dark room. Watching the cement wall behind the tall mirror, he saw the weak projection of blonde light shake violently as a dark figure eclipsed it. Behind him, the furnace clicked off, stopping the rustling of heat swarming through the vents overhead, and the air was utterly still. Hot oxygen blitzed into his lungs and stalled. The shock threw Jesse backward to the cold, grimy floor, and an explicit pain bombarded the back of his head as he met the concrete. The collar of his shirt slipped from his face as terror stifled his breath. In front of the vanity, he lay flat in dreadful incapacity, a vein bulging from the side of his neck, staring hopelessly at the excruciating form that hung directly above him. The same middle-aged woman, pale and sickly-looking, hung from the ceiling. The bulb string fastened into a sharp, thin noose around her neck, the light bulb beneath her jaw shining under her sunken, sorrowful eyes. Her black stilettos kicked manically beneath her long skirt, inches from Jessie's frozen oculi, and she moaned softly in crippled agony. Why won't you help me? She asked. Jesse shot up, riding himself and backing into the desk of the dresser as he looked at the dangling woman in awe. What the hell? Jesse whispered. 
Who... who are... Help me! The woman screamed in desperation, her bony fingers digging into her neck beneath the bloody cord. Stop! Stop! Jesse whined, burying his head into his hands, trembling as his back leaned against the solid vanity. The woman gave two final, hysterical jerks with her entire body as her dark eyes widened and she began to settle. Please, she whispered as her gaze fixated on Jesse, betrayed. Blood gurgled in her throat as her head sank. Jesse forced himself from the vanity and approached her slowly. It seemed to take him an eternity to reach her, his feet instinctively reluctant to move toward the dangling horror. As the thin string twisted and swung beneath the rafter above, causing her lifeless form to rotate and sway haphazardly, the room crept in and out of the darkness. On the staircase in her background, the woman's shadow shifted slowly from side to side, the dim light creeping like fire over the room. Jesse did not dare to look into the mirror behind him. He reached the center of the room and lifted a shaking hand to the woman's mangled neck. He placed his left hand on her hip to stop her swiveling movement, and his quivering right hand met the tightly fastened cord beneath her jugular. His index and middle fingers prodded beneath the snug constraint of the wire, and he touched the woman's bloody skin. Cold, as if she had been dead for hours. As his third finger wiggled between the line and the woman's throat, he felt movement against his knuckle. The woman's vocal cord vibrated gently. He saw the quick jump of the cartilage in the center of the woman's neck. A jolt overtook him as he felt the body lurch into life. Jesse's heart faltered as the woman's face flashed into animation. She gripped his wrist with both hands, looked into his eyes, and smiled wickedly from ear to ear. You will see him now, she said. With a crack, her neck elongated and folded over itself at a supernatural angle. She stretched her lips around the light bulb, and the golden light turned red beneath her vascular cheeks. Shooting Jesse a squinting smile with her eyes, she bit down on the bulb crushing its filament under her teeth, and the room became dark. He lay, hyperventilating in the darkness for a moment, before a massive green light flooded the room. Jesse fell to the floor beneath a weighty force, and his limbs flayed helplessly. Then the weight was lifted, and the basement was quiet once more. Jesse identified the gigantic mirror of the vanity as the source of the ominous glow. In his peripheral vision, he saw a thin figure to his left and turned to find the old woman giggling hideously as she chewed the bulb's glass and swallowed. Her devious eyes looked to the opposite side of the room. Standing to the left of the laundry machines, his bloated gut heaving with each breath, was the formidable figure of a man. He was slightly beyond middle age, with a balding head and a graying, scraggly beard reaching his thick neck. 
He was covered in some kind of elastic tarp, and as Jesse looked more closely, he found that it was a large trash bag. The man had apparently been trapped in it and had managed to shove his head and arms through the plastic. Bungee cords wrapped around the black bag tied securely around his wide torso. Crooked nails sunk into the lower part of his face, affixing his mutilated lips to his gums and exposing gnarled, partially missing teeth. A waterfall-shaped bloodstain stretched from his mouth over his beard and down to the base of his neck. The man roared into the emerald luminescence as he stomped in Jesse's direction. Jesse jumped to his feet and began to climb the stairs, barely reaching the third step before feeling a stout grip on his right shoulder. He was flung backward and crashed to the floor before the dresser. He looked up to find the man barreling toward him, the bright gleam of the mirror accentuating his bloodshot eyes and disfigured, swollen cheeks. Jesse rose and lunged into the corner behind the vanity. The man lumbered across the room and crashed into the vanity, falling atop it as the dresser clattered to the floor. A booming clash shook the structure as the mirror snapped from its base and the man came to rest upon the splintered desk. Jesse darted past the man, who crawled to his left and sent a thundering forearm into Jesse's shin. He came to rest at the bottom of the staircase and found the woman anchoring him, laughing rapidly as she allowed blood to spill from her mouth and throat onto Jesse's face. The woman's victim slipped out from under her and bounded up the stairs into the quiet night. He stepped out of the cellar and bent over to grasp the doors. Under the green glow, the man trampled over the woman and began to climb the staircase. Jesse found a wooden plank in either hand and lifted swiftly with the totality of his strength. The doors came down simultaneously with a clamber. The man screamed in pain, and Jesse felt a blunt strike on his chin. He threw his weight onto the doors and forced the man's mangled arm out from between them. As the roars of the man persisted and the doors shook with marvelous force, Jesse removed the lock from his pocket and slid it into the hasp of the doors. He closed the padlock down firmly and trampled around the house and through the front door. Jesse washed the blood from his face and hands in the bathroom sink and went to the bedroom to change into fresh clothes. Underfoot, he felt the floor shake as something below fought desperately to escape its enclosure. He entered the kitchen and heard the crashing of the wooden cellar doors as they buckled under an amazing force. In the blue darkness, he sat on the floor in front of the sink, panting in perturbed terror. Eventually, he heard the crack of the cellar doors being dismantled and the man's roar. Moments later, he heard a tapping at the front door. The soft sound continued for the remainder of the night and into the morning, a feeble, constant knocking. Petey lay in the dark doorway and whined. Commiseration should not be aimed toward Jesse Flippin. As has been previously alluded to, and as will become embarrassingly apparent during forthcoming events, Jesse is not a hero. 
Since his childhood, he could not have been considered benevolent. He was not overly courageous or kind. He had always been easily angered and rarely showed remorse for his actions. And each time he walked down 17th Street, Jesse Flitpin did so with his hood up and his eyes low. He did not walk down 17th Street on Thursday morning, however. In fact, he didn't leave the house at all. He had no intention of attending the day's classes. Instead, as the apricot glow of the sunrise leaked over the hardwood floor, Jesse rose from the kitchen table and removed a substantial amount of dog shit and piss from the floor near the front door. He thought of calling a junk removal service, but quickly realized that he could not afford their fee to remove a piece of furniture so large as the dresser. So, Jesse spent hours trying to find any financial records left by his mother. No such records existed within the house. He did recall, however, when unpacking his nebulous and terrifying recollection of the previous night, that the dresser had fallen and broken into fragments. And so, with prudence and angst, he exited the house and went into the basement to remove it piece by piece. The time-worn wooden cellar doors were intact and locked. The basement was dark, though the light bulb hung conventionally. He pulled the string beside the bulb, and the light shone as usual over the gray cement floor. The vanity stood steadfast, perfectly intact, nefariously jeering, unequivocally vile. Jesse's head swam. Exhausted and delirious, he exited the basement, locked the doors, entered the house, and went to the bedroom to lie down. A woman screamed from below for mercy. Jesse slept. Jesse woke. The bedroom was utterly black. The bed shook as if an outrageous force stood beneath it. A woman screamed desperately with instinctive distress, a high-pitched throat-bleeding wail. Below him, thin, frail hands clobbered at a solid restraint. Fingernails dug and scratched at a wooden enclosure. Hyperventilation came between each scream. For hours, Jesse lay rigid, his neck locked in a straight position, pinning his head to the pillows. He clenched his jaw, and his cheeks shook as the entire bedroom floor rocked vehemently. As the frenzied roars persisted, he squeezed his eyes shut, and tears streamed down the sides of his face. Over time, pressure built in his bladder, and pain began to burn in his stomach, though terror paralyzed him. Through the pillows, the metal springs of the mattress pressed harshly against the bruise on the back of his head. Finally, after centuries of torment, silence fell over the bedroom. Heavy feet stomped on wood. The sound came from the opposite side of the house, beyond the kitchen. It must have been the stairs to the cellar. Metal rattled against worn planks. Bursts of force shook the house. Still, there came no sound from beneath the bedroom. Blunt violence prevailed through a barrier, 
a sharp snap of lumber breaking into fragments. Another pound echoed throughout the dark house, and more wood fell to the earth. A third collision. The almost imperceivable squeak of rusted hinges. Heavy weight toppled to the ground. Silence fell for a few short moments before an ambiguous knock at the front door. A man's roaring voice. Jesse could barely hear it from where he lay in the bedroom, trembling. A harsher knock at the door. The authoritative percussion of knuckles on steel came in threes. Three more knocks. Then three more. A man's domineering shout. The knocks paused. A deep, heavy, reverberating hammer on the door. The man's voice grew louder. From inside the house, a dog barked. The severe knocking continued and then stopped once more. Jesse whispered Petey's name, attempting to call the dog without alerting the presence outside of his location in the bedroom. No sound came of the four-legged footsteps, no semblance of nails on the hardwood. He thought of his seventh birthday party, Petey in a party hat, and what his mom said about how ice cream cake tasted better once it had melted a bit. He thought about how his embarrassment had turned to violent rage, and how he had intentionally crushed that poor little frog for no particular reason at all. He thought of Morgan Lindstrom, her rejection, her telling everyone in the class about what he had done and how she had tried to pull his arm out of Hoppy's cage with all of her might. An offensive clobbering on the door burst through the hallway. A sharp slap as a picture frame fell from the wall in the hallway and smacked the hardwood. Vicious steel crushing steel. Jesse leapt from the bed, swiftly closed the bedroom door, locked it, and lay back down atop the blankets. An explosion just feet away. A defeated door was swinging open, nearly folded in half from an inconceivable power. Footsteps clamber over the threshold and throughout the house. Voices. Multiple voices. At least one man was thundering down the hallway. And at least one woman. The wiggle of the bedroom doorknob. The crack of splintered wood as the top of the door flung from its hinges, hanging inward at a 45-degree angle. Soft brushes of light terrorized the hallway and flowed onto the ceiling from beyond the partially hung door. In the window of light, a dark figure appeared. The brutalized door was swept to the side, and the figure entered, and there was blackness. Blackness and silence. Jesse felt his weight being moved violently, but lost all control over his being, a sharp pain in his side and a heavy weight on his back. Terror strangled his lungs, and his muscles winced in agony. An icy grip on each arm, bending his shoulders back to their absolute limit. A terse stab in both wrists and ankles, only his head could now move on its own. Sound returned first and all at once. Dozens of feet shuffled around his head, 
Voices filled the room. Tell Hicks and Gomez to sweep the backyard when they're done in the basement, a man said. Sir, sir, Jesse? Are you Jesse Flippin? Another man asked from directly behind him. Jesse's eyes opened and beams of white light blinded him. He maneuvered under the man's weight and turned his head to find blurs of black and white searching the room. Jesse, is that you? The same voice asked again. It was the man whose solid weight was digging into his spine. With a click of the bedside lamp, the room shot into yellow visibility. Jesse followed a pair of black boots up to a pair of black pants, a heavily equipped black belt, a square black shirt with a golden badge hanging from its chest, a ruddy-cheeked, bearded face with a look of fierce determination. The figure standing over him moved the rays of light from his eyes to the carpet in front of him. "'Where are Beverly and Richard? Where are the man and the woman?' the man asked. Jesse felt his eyes shift from the officer to the bed and return almost instantly. "'Under the bed! Under the bed!' the policeman shouted, pointing to the bed where Jesse had previously laid. The bed was thrown to the opposite wall, and a thick slab of plywood was exposed over the carpet. Together, the officers lifted the lumber, unfastening several sporadically implanted nails. The wooden barrier was lifted to reveal a large hole in the floor, about six feet by six feet. The ungodly scent surged through the air, and the officers grimaced and choked. "'Ma'am, can you hear me? Ma'am, are you all right?' a female officer shouted down into the cavity. They lifted a woman, dressed in a nightgown, slightly overweight, with light brown graying hair, from the pit and carried her out of the room, placing her carefully on the floor in the hallway. EMS, in here now! The policewoman shouted down the hallway, crouching next to the woman, who lay still. They settled a weight onto the floor next to Jesse with a thud and cut a hole down the center of a black trash bag and threw several tightly wrapped bungee cords. Jesse heard the rustling of plastic and turned to the right to see a large mass extracted from the hole by several officers. As the tarp was pulled back, Jesse recognized a dead face, slightly beyond middle age, with a balding head and a graying, scraggly beard reaching his thick neck. Nails were fastened through his lips and jaw, and dried blood stained his chin. Tears filled Jesse's eyes as the stabbing pain in his back deepened. Are there others? The officer shouted at the back of his neck. Is there anyone else? A familiar voice came screaming down the hallway. Stop! You're hurting him! It's not his fault! Jesse looked up through crying eyes to find a blonde-haired woman standing over him. "'Kelly?' he asked. "'Yes, Jesse, it's me, Dr. Kelly.' "'Oh, my God. What have you done?' The woman asked as the stench overtook her, and her sleeve covered her mouth and nose, tears forming in her eyes. "'I, I didn't do anything,' Jesse said. It was the vanity. Jesse, you're sick, remember? 
she asked. Get off of him. He's restrained and you can see that he's not being violent. Ma'am, we have procedures for a reason, said the officer. Jesse Flippin, you have the right to... Just let me talk to him. He won't resist, she shouted. The weight was lifted from Jesse's back, and the blonde-haired woman crouched before Jesse's sobbing face. Jesse, you have to tell me. I need you to think really hard. Do you remember doing this? Was there anyone else here? Do you remember hurting anyone else? I, I didn't hurt anyone, Jesse whined. It was the mirror. I didn't do anything. Jesse, you're sick, remember? You hurt people and then you can't remember. You're lying, Jesse shouted. She's lying. I haven't hurt anyone. It's the dresser. I know you're cheating. Another familiar voice cut off Jesse, a woman entering the room. Jesse, please, God, don't let it be him. Jesse, are you in... No, no, no. Jesse, are you all right? Oh, my... I'm so sorry, baby. This is all my fault. Jesse's stomach dropped. His heart bulged, squeezing his lungs against his ribcage. He slammed his forehead against the carpeted floor, closing his eyes for a moment, and looked up at the woman with maddened anguish, sweat turning his hair to a black slime pasted over his forehead. She was a rotund woman, nearing middle age, with dark, curly hair. She wore jeans and a white tank top covered hastily by an oversized plaid shirt. Julie Flitpin looked down at her son with miserable, tormented pity. It's all my fault. I should never have let you move out. I should have checked on you more often, she blubbered, tears pouring over her fluttering lips. You're dead. Jesse whispered to the floor. Julie crouched before her son, placing a hand on his bony shoulder. What? No, honey, I'm right here. You're dead! Jesse shouted, squirming to his knees and sending Julie backward in shock. Sir, stay where you are, a policeman said from behind Jesse, placing an unyielding grip on each of his elbows. You're lying, just like she is! Jesse screamed, unhinged, nodding toward Dr. Kelly. Mr. Flippin, lower your voice now or we will remove you, said the officer. Voices and footsteps scrambled outside of the room. I got a pulse, said one of the paramedics. Get her on the gurney, said the other. Go on and lie like you always did, Jesse yelled to his mother. As you lied about John hitting you, like you covered up the bruises! Jesse's mother sobbed, so choked by sorrow that she could barely speak. She shook her head. No, hun, you're sick, she said, sniffling. John never laid a hand on me. You did. You just don't remember. Shut up! Shut the fuck up! Jesse wailed his voice trembling as he attempted to stand. All right, let's get him out of here, one of the officers said, 
and two of them lifted Jesse by the arm, carrying his distraught, convulsive form out of the room and down the hallway. Dr. Kelly, a psychiatrist who for years had been treating Jesse's schizophrenia and anosognosia, had been notified by the university that he had been acting strangely, sitting in on lectures and diligently taking notes rather than completing his duties as custodian. The professors had been quite patient with Jesse, maybe because they empathized with him or maybe because the assisted employment program allowed employers to pay psychiatric patients a fraction of what it would cost to hire from outside the program, saving the school thousands of dollars per semester. But the reason is inconsequential to our story. After Jesse had failed to attend their second scheduled appointment in a row on Thursday and had also failed to answer his phone, Dr. Kelly had reached out to Jesse's mother, who had not spoken to him in days. After inspection of his apartment, the front door to which was left unlocked and ajar, Jesse's mother found that he had left his phone at home and consequently contacted the police department. The police had already received reports that Richard and Beverly Hargrove had not been seen by their neighbors in days, and that a strange young man had been seen walking around the neighborhood and frightening a local child. After being notified of an unaccounted for psychiatric patient in the same area, the police department obtained a warrant to search the house on 17th Street. Jesse shuffled out of the front door and into a bustling dark street, his face tingling with drying tears. Emergency lights sent flashes of red and blue glow over the pavement. Police cars and ambulances lined up along the driveway and street. Reporters stood in pockets of light between the shadows, the lights from the cameras before them shining brightly. Neighbors stood on every porch in robes, slippers, or sweatpants, pointing at the scene, blathering over each other and wincing as they brought their hands to their faces. A distraught Jesse Flitpin was led to a squad car. His attention was demanded by a pair of screaming officers who were being consoled and constrained by their peers. Their names were Camille Gomez and Calvin Hicks. Gomez was a black-haired woman, slight and short in stature. Hicks was a tall, bald man, not slim, but not overly bulky. The attention of over half of the officers on the scene appeared to be in calming the two down. Get everyone out of there now, yelled Hicks, standing at the back of an ambulance behind a crowd of restraining policemen. Gomez stood next to him, breathing heavily out of an oxygen mask. Hicks and Gomez had just left the basement of the house. I'm serious. Don't send anyone else down there. Calvin, relax. There are cameras, said one of the officers. It was him! He was down there, said Hicks, crying as he pointed to another one of the ambulances. Over the coming weeks, Hicks and Gomez would each have to undergo careful psychiatric treatment before being reinstated to the force. What they reportedly witnessed in the basement, looking in the mirror of the antique dresser in the center of the room, was the reflection of a woman sitting on the stairs, her legs crossed and with a wide smile on her face. And, sitting next to her, 
leaning forward with his elbows rested on his knees, the very man whose body had just been removed from the house. Beverly Hargrove eventually recovered and returned home just over a week after Jessie Flitpin's arrest, receiving a warm welcome from her dog, General. Two days later, General alerted the neighbors next door, the same neighbors who had cared for the dog during Beverly's hospital stay, of a fire that would ultimately take Beverly's life. Around two in the morning, emergency services were summoned to extinguish the fire. After his owner's death, General would go on to live happily with Julie Flitpin, who adopted the dog out of guilt for the immense suffering caused by her son. Investigators concluded that Beverly Hargrove had not intentionally taken her life, but had accidentally done so while setting fire to the dresser in the basement. After the widow Hargrove had doused much of the cellar in gasoline, the furnace must have inadvertently exploded, causing the premature burning of the basement. This unfortunate occurrence, while not impossible, was a slight bewilderment to authorities, as the heating system did not appear to have been running at the time of the explosion. The antique dresser, wholly vile, impervious, and oppressively wicked, was miraculously recovered and sold for a small profit at the estate sale. You've been listening to A Reflection on 17th Street by R.J. Taylor. Well, my friends, that concludes our broadcast evening. Be sure to join us next week at the same time and place for more spooky stories, frightening fables, and terrifying tales. In the meantime, don't forget to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and I hope that you have an eerie week. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show, and that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. As for me personally, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, 
username Viking Guitar, and also on Instagram as Viking Guitar Productions. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was hosted by, and its featured tale performed by, yours truly, Eric Peabody. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Nikki McSorley and Eric Peabody. Finalization by Craig Groshek and S.K. Brown. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for future production. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to us to make sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to let us know how we're doing and leave us a kind comment. Lastly, Don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archives and ad-free downloads of all of your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, you can hear more of my work on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. However, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.